passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Good morning, Crosswinds family. If you're new, my name is Kurt, and we are as a church working our way through the book of Genesis. Genesis is a big book, and so we are taking big pieces of text, because if I don't take big pieces of text, guys, we're all going to be dead by the time we get to chapter 50. So uh, we're taking big pieces. In fact, today we're going to take a really big piece. We're going to move from doing one chapter a week to doing two chapters today. So a lot to cover. Last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, and Genesis chapter 3 was a really important chapter in this book because it explained all the mess and all the problems we have in this world. We learned why Fox News is always giving us bad news, like every other news organization, because this world is falling apart. We learned why your car comes with a lock and your house comes with a key. We learned why doctors and undertakers are in a completely recession-proof business. It's all because of sin. Because of sin, this entire world is falling apart. And it all began with Adam and Eve and one chosen act of rebellion against God. It didn't look like much of an act of rebellion against God, just eating from the one tree on the planet that they were told not to touch. I mean, what can happen from a little rebellion? But what we discover is that that little rebellion, it's a little bit like mold. You know how you get a little bit of mold? It just spreads, and soon it takes over everything, and it ruins everything? Well, that's exactly what we have in Genesis chapter 4 and 5. Sin spreads. Sin goes into the children of Adam and Eve, and it goes from the children to their children. And it doesn't just spread to other people. It gets worse and worse over time. This is why we've called this message Descent. It's descent into sin. Sin gets worse over time. Now, let's go ahead and put our finger in the text. Let's start working our way through. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to start at the very beginning with Cain and Abel, the infamous, famous children of Adam and Eve. And we'll see how sin starts to get worse and to spread. It begins with Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Adam knew Cain, his wife, and she conceived, and Adam knew, Adam knew Eve, his wife, excuse me, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, this sounds innocuous, and it actually may be innocuous, and maybe I'm just reading things into it, but it sounds to me like she's pretty stoked, and she's pretty excited, the fact that she's had a kid. Now, that's not necessarily wrong. I mean, this is the first child born on the planet. And moms, aren't you excited when you have like your first kid? I mean, the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, could not have been written yet because she didn't know what to expect when she was expecting. But quite honestly, and maybe I'm just feeling it in the text here, I'm thinking that she is a, a little bit overproud in the birth of her son. Remember Genesis 3.15 we looked at last week? That one of the seed of the woman would eventually destroy Satan? 
And I'm thinking she's going, well, guess what? I've just had a kid. It's a boy. This guy is probably going to be the one to crush Satan's head. So she is totally stoked in her son. Like, my kid is going to be the answer to my, all my problems in my world. Moms, have you ever done that? My kid is going to be like my hero and all the answers? Yes, yeah. I think that's a little bit where she's at. Now, the reality is, Cain doesn't turn out to be a little Jesus. Cain turns out to be a little demon. And boy, does he make a mess of things. And your kids are not your answer. Next, we have this. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. So, we have Abel that comes along. He's the second one. We have even less information on Abel than we have with Cain. And why do we have so little in the way of information? Here's my guess. You know, Mom, you know how when you're first child, you did everything right? You know how you had the video camera with you the whole time? You, like, video recorded their entire life, and it's at home on video cassette. You know, your first child. And then what happens when the second child comes along? You're just happy if you remember to take the video camera off the charger. You know, because you've got too much going on. So I think we've got Abel comes along, and she's a busy mom. A lot of stuff going on. But Abel has an interesting name. Abel, his name means breath. His name means vapor. It's used in the book of Ecclesiastes to describe our life. Here today, gone tomorrow. Real fragile. And isn't that prophetic? Prophetic of Abel's life? Here today, gone tomorrow, and just a breath. That's what life is. No one's going to last forever. I don't think she realized that at the beginning, but God prophetically gave, helped her give Abel that name. Now her kids grow up. They get out of diapers. They get out of high school. They get a job. Cain is a farmer, like his dad. Good, reputable business. Abel starts keeping the sheep. You know, that's sort of a new career. But this is what's going on, and it continues. Now, in the course of time... Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. The scriptures say, in the course of time. That means sort of at the regular time. Apparently, Cain and Abel were in the regular habit of offering, giving offerings to God. The Bible doesn't give us all the background, doesn't give us all the instructions, but this was something that they regularly did. Many theologians believe this was what they call a harvest offering, sort of like we're at that time of year where the harvest comes in, and then you give an offering out of your harvest. And this is essentially what we think is going on here. Cain brings an offering and Abel brings an offering. But there are totally different reactions. God loves one and he doesn't accept the other. Now, usually at this point, we go on and we just start busting on Cain's chops. Isn't that the typical sermon at this point? 
But before we start busting on Cain, I just want to mention something. You know, I actually like Cain because Cain at least got something right. Here's what he got right. Cain understood that when you worship God, at least you have to bring something. See, worship is not about what we get, but worship is about what we give. At least Cain got that part right. Worship is giving something to God, not just about what we get when we come. Now, I think people in modern church completely miss this. Because Christians in America typically come to church and they think that worship is all about what they get, not about what they give. Because you come to church and you get a free coffee. You come to church and you get to sing. Then you come to church and you get to sit there and listen to a preacher. And then you come, go out and you, you know, eat cookies and you make a mess. And then you go home and you have somebody else clean it up after you. And then when you go home, you can sit there and you can evaluate it like it's part of the Olympics. You know, well, I think the pastor was too tall. The coffee was too hot. The child care wasn't up to my standards. And it's all of a sudden, it's all about me. You know, worship is about what I get. But worship isn't about what I get. Worship is what we give. Worship is what we give in honor to God. So I have a question for you. When you come here on Sunday mornings, what kind of mindset do you come with? Do you come to say, you know, I'm going to see what I get this morning? Or do you come saying, I'm here to see what I can give this morning? True worship begins with wanting to give something. So I have to ask you, Are you here to make a mess or are you here to give and clean up the mess? It's true. Are you here to serve yourself or did you come here this morning with the mindset that says, you know, I'm here to serve others, not to be served by others. You know, one of the classics, the garbage in the foyer is an example. People sometimes will say to me, you know, that garbage is full. It needs to be emptied. Let me tell you, it just betrays your mindset. Are you here to have people give to you? Or are you here to have people to give to them? If the garbage is full, take it out. By the way, the new bags are on the bottom of the can. Let me just tell you that right up front. We're here to give to others. Not to see what we can always get from others. Now, some people will say, well, I don't always want to give. Because you know what? Giving is inconvenient for me. I have plans. I got places to go. I got people to meet. I got things to do. If I start to give, I have to come early and I have to help get the coffee ready. If I start to give, I have to stay late and I have to clean up. David said this, I will not worship the Lord with something that cost me nothing. Why did he say that? Because true worship by definition is inconvenient. If worship costs you nothing, it is not worship. True? So, before we bust too hard on Cain, and when he gets wrong with his offering, at least he got this right. He brought something. And when we come to church, we come to church, and we have to have that mindset. I'm here to give, not primarily to get.
Let's go ahead and look at the two offerings. Why was Cain's offering rejected and his brother's accepted? What we find here is that even if we give to God, there's a right way to give and a wrong way to give. Even if we give to God, there's a right attitude to how we give and a wrong attitude to how we give. And here's what we discover about the difference between their offerings. Abel brought what was first and what was best. Cain brought the leftovers. Abel brought what was first and what was best. Cain brought the leftovers. You get further into the Pentateuch and you discover the offerings. When, when the offerings were to be given, they were always to be the firstborn of the flock. You want to give what was first because who deserves to get what is first? God. Because God deserves to be first. Worship of him deserves to be of the firstborn of the flock. You give him what is first. And if you don't give him what is first, and you give him a bunch of leftovers, it's not so much the fact that, the, that you're giving him like a leftover lamb, but it's betraying the position that he holds in your heart. That in your heart, worship of God involves leftovers. In addition to giving the firstborn of the flock, it says that Abel gave the fat portions. Now, we're in a little different position. We're always told not to eat the fat portions, right? Because that's the part that has too many calories and clogs your arteries and all that. But let me just be honest. Uh, what tastes better, venison or hamburger? Thank you. Because hamburger has more what in it? Fat. So the idea when Abel gives the fat portions, it's like he's saying, I'm not just giving like the, the firstborn of the flock, but I'm giving the best part of the firstborn of the flock. The tasty part, the part that everybody wants to get. You see what it is, is Abel, when it comes to worship of God, wants to give God what is first and what is best. Because in Abel's heart, he's saying, God, you deserve to be first. You deserve what is best out of my life. There is true worship of God going on in there. Cain, on the outside, he brings the leftovers. Now, you, some of you will say, well, one's meat, one's vegetables. I'm not going to get into the difference between those other than to say that it says in the Old Testament that when you did give a vegetable offering, you gave the first fruits of your crop. Same idea. You gave what was first and what was best. And we don't see Cain doing that here. The story continues. Oh, let me, let me jump over to this one. I want to show you Malachi 1, verses 8 and 9. It talks about this. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. And will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to you? And God says here in Malachi, you give me the junk. You give me the leftovers from your life and then say, oh Lord, bless me. It's like, you think I'm going to bless you? when you can't even offer, bother to give me what is quality out of your life? See, this offering that we're seeing in Malachi is betraying the truth. 
that the people's heart, even though they're giving to God, their heart is very far from God. Now, let me just ask you, when you look in your life, how is your life and what are you offering? Would you say that in your heart you're saying, God, I'm giving you what is first in my life. God, I'm giving you what is best in my life because you deserve what is first. You deserve what is best because you are so good and so gracious. Or when you look in your heart, what do you see? God, here's a leftover. It's betraying the truth of what's going on in our heart. Let me just get real practical on some things here. Here's some examples. Your tithe check. Is that the first check you write when the paycheck comes in, or is that the last check you write when there happens to be money left over? Betrays the truth in our hearts. Your Bible reading. Is it the first thing you do in the morning because God deserves what is first and what is best, or is it the last thing you do at night if there's time? God deserves what is first and what is best. After church, what do you do when I say amen? Do you bolt out of here as fast as you can because you have to get to your life and to your plans? Or do you stop and say, you know what? It's not about what I get and then run. It's about what I give when I'm here. Do you stop? Do you take time to grab a visitor? Do you take time to to talk to them? Do you take time to welcome them and sacrifice of your time and sacrifice of yourself so people who are visitors here feel extremely welcome? Now, here's a question for you. If a visitor was here today, would they come back next week because they felt so welcomed and so loved by you and how much you gave of your time? Would they? You see... What often happens is we get to the point we think about worship as what we get out of it, not we, what we give into it. During the week, if you're on the city, you get uh, prayer chain updates. You guys get those? What do you do with the prayer chain update? Do you go, there's another annoying email from the church and delete? Or do you stop and take the time to pray for them? And do you say, you know what, I'm willing to be inconvenienced because I I'm going to actually get to call some of these people. I'm going to encourage them and let them know that I prayed for them. And if I can't call them, I'm just going to at least go on the city and message them. Or I'm going to text them. Well, that takes time. It takes, it's inconvenient. But remember, worship isn't about what you get. Worship is more about what you give. Another question. You know, you get those little emails uh, on the city. It says about cookies. You know, do you want to bring cookies on Sunday morning? What do you do? Delete another one of those inconvenient church emails. And then what happens after church? There's cookies that somebody bought. I'm going to eat them. Because worship is about what I get. Versus is worship about what you give? How can I get on the city and say, you know what? I'm going to take that. I'm going to serve somebody else on Sunday morning. Let me give to them, not just be focusing on what I get from them. God deserves to be worshipped with what is first and what is best. And for some of us, at least we need to start worshiping God by giving something. 
Remember, worship is about giving, not just getting. Now, the story continues. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God looks at Cain, and God can see that Cain is depressed. You know, my wife says it about me. I can't hide when I'm sad. I can't hide my emotions on my face. Any of you guys like that? You just, like, can't hide it real well? Uh, Cain's not a good hider. God can see it on his face. He says, you've got to do something to repent of this anger, this jealousy, this frustration you have on your, against your brother. In fact, literally what it says is that sin is crouching at your door. And the word picture here is like an animal, like a tiger or a lion that is poised and ready to pounce, to take him down. And what God is doing is God is graciously intervening in Cain's life. And he's saying, Cain, repent. Turn from sin because your anger is going to get the best of you. That's God being gracious and warning him. Now, folks, this morning, some of you may be in this exact same position. You came here. You came here angry. You came here frustrated. You came here and you've been rolling around in your mind things that people have done to you. You dream at night about ways you want to get even with them, things you want to say to them. And I got a question for you. Does that make it better or make it worse? Worse. Does that make you calmer or hotter? It makes you hotter. Just in case you didn't realize that. Because we all do that. We roll these things around in our mind. We think of ways to get even. Don't go there. This is the position that Cain was in. And you have two options. You either internalize it and become a depressed person, or you externalize it and become a violent person which is exactly what Cain is about to do. He's about ready to externalize his anger. Now, what should Cain have done? Cain should have repented. God said simply, just offer the right gift. You know, no, no foul. Just offer the right gift. I'm gracious. I'm kind. I'm loving. I'm forgiving. And if he, you know, what he needed to do is just leave the anger at God's feet and move on. But that's not what he does. And look where it leads. Look how sin ruins life. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, well, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Where does it lead? Cold blooded murder. Harboring anger in your heart, bitterness in your heart, jealousy in your heart leads to a bitter end. Now, how did he murder him? I don't know. Maybe he grabbed a rock and knocked him upside the head. Maybe he took a knife and shanked him one. I'm going with the knife and the shank because it talks about the blood being on the ground. And that's a, that's a bloody way to go. Maybe it was a shovel, because obviously I think he buried his body when he was done with this. And he figured that nobody would know about, know about it. Now, it's a little foolish, because I think he would be obviously missed at the dinner table, you know. But um, he thinks he can hide his sin. And last week we learned from 
Adam and Eve that hiding your sin is not a viable option because God always knows. In fact, God decides he would just reveal it. A little pop quiz time. Um, Cain, like, where's your brother? Don't you hate those kind of pop quizzes where God comes along and says these things? And Cain just lies, flat-out lies. I have no idea where he is. He accepts no responsibility. I am not my brother's keeper. Now, before we start mocking Cain at what a stupid answer he had and what a selfless, cold-hearted snake he is, let's just be honest that for each one of us, it's very easy to give the exact same answer as Cain. When you were at church, we end up walking around. Did you ever realize sometimes you see people that you used to see at the coffee bar, but you don't see them? And you're thinking, well, maybe I'm just missing them. Maybe they're going to a, a different service. And what does the Holy Spirit begin to do? prompt you. You know, like, maybe I should call them and just make sure things are okay in the family. And, and what do we say? Oh, come on, God. Am I my brother's keeper? Do I have to really go out of my way to call them? That's inconvenient. Don't we have elders that do that? Isn't that, like, the pastor's job to go out of their way and to, like, go find people who are missing and, and, and track them down? That's not my job. I'm not my brother's keeper. Let the scriptures say, yes, we are our brother's keeper. It is our responsibility to find people who happen to be drifting away, to find people who are in difficult times here in our church family, and to go do something about it. Jude 11 talks about people who follow the way of Cain. And I wonder what the way of Cain is. And here's what I think it is. The way of Cain are people who say, you know what? I'm really just concerned about me. I'm not concerned about you. This morning, when you look in the mirror of your heart, what do you see when it comes to your worship? Is it all about me? Or am I here to serve you? Am I here because I care about you? I love what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. It says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love our brothers. Loving our brothers. It's one of the great evidences that Jesus has changed our heart. And it's not just our, our church brothers, but it's our family as well. I like this one. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The idea is here, it's our job to care for and to love our church family and our own family. The story continues. After Cain doesn't think it's his job. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength, and you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. When you think of Cain, think of this, that when you sin, you will suffer. When we sin, 
we will suffer. There is no way to escape it. Sin is always a bad choice. Now, Cain used to be a farmer, and I suspect he was probably a pretty good farmer. But now there's the result of his sin. The earth will no longer yield easily its produce. So Cain no longer gets hungry man dinners. Cain is like on a major diet right now because it's hard for him to get anything out of the ground. Not only that, but Cain is going to be a lifelong fugitive. You guys ever see the movie Fugitive, by the way, with Harrison Ford? Yeah. I honestly, when I see, when I see that movie, I keep picturing Cain. That's like, except Cain is, uh, Harrison Ford was running for like two hours for the length of the movie. Cain is run, running for the rest of his life, afraid of revenge killing. Someone from the family taking his life because he took his brother's life. And it says he's also going to be a vagabond. He's never going to be able to settle down. Never going to be able to be comfortable. Never going to have like a, a hometown and a place where he can just belong. That's the consequence of his sin. He's never going to have a great crop again. He's going to be hungry. Number two, he's going to be a fugitive. Number three, he's going to be a, a, a vagabond. Maybe to you that sounds harsh. Now, here's what I want you to realize. That's not harsh. That's merciful. What does Cain deserve? Death. God, throughout these chapters in Genesis, again and again, you see him giving mercy. Not giving people what they deserve. God has given us oftentimes much less than we deserve. Isn't that true? Aren't we thankful for God's mercy? Again and again, here we see it. God's mercy in Cain's life. But Cain doesn't just get mercy, which is getting what you deserve or not getting what you deserve. Cain gets grace. Cain gets something he doesn't deserve. Look at this. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now, I find this amusing. Here is Cain worried about somebody killing him, yet this is the guy who just killed his own brother. <laughs> You seem, seem a little selfish to me, Cain. You know, but God is very nice to him. He doesn't just give him mercy, which is not giving what he deserves. He gives him grace. And this grace is what you call the mark of Cain. Now, what is the mark of Cain? Some of you are going to ask that when you get to your life groups this week. I have no idea. Doesn't tell us. Maybe it's a big, huge tattoo across with his forehead. It says, where God says, mess with Cain, mess with me. Signed, God. You know, I mean, maybe that's it. But the point is this. God promises that anybody who tries to take revenge on Cain, God will take revenge on them sevenfold. What God promises to do is give Cain his divine protection. Does he deserve this? No. God is being merciful and gracious to Cain.
Now, what happens at this point? The Bible has had a zoom lens on Cain and Abel. So we can see what happens and how quickly things descend in sin. On one generation in, we already have murder. You know, things are going downhill pretty fast. What happens from here on out is we cover 1,600 years of history. And we're going to cover 1,600 years of history in the space of about 12 minutes. So we go from a zoom lens to a wide-angle lens. And we see what happens with the descendants of Cain. And what do you think? Do you think things get better or do you think things get worse? They get worse. They get much worse, which is why we call this descent into sin. This is Cain's line, which is the rise of godless civilization. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two of his wives, and took two wives, and the name of the one was Ada, and the other was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabel, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal, who was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. And Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, who was the forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Let's explain the text. He moves to the land of Nod. Nod, incidentally, is Hebrew for wandering. So he never really goes to the place where he settles down. He just moves to the land of wandering. He's like, I'm going to become the, like, the first nomad here. He moves east of Eden. It's a key phrase. Every time in Scripture, when you see something that says moving east of Eden, that's roughly synonymous to moving away from God. Babylon, east of Eden. Sodom and Gomorrah, east of Eden. So is Cain moving closer to God or Cain moving farther from God? Moving farther from God. Next question, where does Cain get his wife? And some of you are going to get your brains all tied in knots tonight on this at your life group. It's not that hard. Genesis chapter 5, verse 2 says, Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters. This was not an exhaustive list of their children. So, who does Cain marry? Either his sister or maybe his niece. This is what we have going on down here. Cain gets really tired of this fugitive, vagabond, no-farming lifestyle. So he continues to rebel against God and says, you know what, I'm going to settle down because I have a kid and I want my kid to have a high school. I want my kid to play sports. I want my kid to be in a community. I'm going to rebel against God. And just so you know, the Hebrew is interesting. It says he settles a city. (laughs) The The tense of the Hebrew verb says he started to settle it, but he could never finish settling it. So God kept his promise, told you you'd never be able to settle down. By the way, a city is not the size of New York or Los Angeles. A city in this culture is like a small settlement. So that's about all he could get. 
And what happens is you start following uh, the generations here. And what Moses does is he records these, and you go seven generations in. There's a total of ten generations of records, but they take and they sample the seventh generation. Lamech is the seventh generation. Now, what has happened by the time we get to Lamech? We've gone from monogamy, that God has declared, to polygamy. You know, Lamech thinks he's got the entire world of women covered. He's gone from A to Z, you know, Ada to Zilla. And Lamech has got a little ego problem. He thinks he's really tough. He's really violent. He's also a rapper, by the way. Can't you hear the rap here? It's like, read this. It's a rap. And he says like this. Um, hear my voice. Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. He's a rapper, isn't he? You can put that to rap music. What he's doing is he's singing in front of his wives about what a tough study is. He's like, here's the deal. You know, I was helping at my kid's school. A kid handed me a piece of paper. I got a paper cut, but because I'm such a stud, I killed him. That's essentially what he's saying. He's like, I'm driving down the road. Somebody cuts me off in traffic. I pull out my Uzi and I blow them away. That's Lamech. Not a nice guy. I mean, could you imagine if you were his neighbor and the leaves this fall happened to blow from your tree onto his yard? Who knows what he would have done. You bounced the check on this guy, he burned your house down. And his little refrain is this. He says, yo, if Cain was revenged seven times by God, you ain't seen nothing yet until you've seen Lamech. I'm the real stud. Lamech is revenged 77 times. I go way over the top. You do anything that's close to offending me, and I will make your life a living hell. So what we have is by the time we get down to Lamech, the world is filled with violent sexual perverts. That's what he is. Two wives and a violent, abusive, evil man. Now, what you want to realize is by the time we get down to um, Noah, which is just three generations later, this is what the Scriptures say about what people were like on the earth. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of their thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In 1,600 years the world has fallen into a godless, wicked, vile place. Now, I could stop there, and it would be the perfect way to end the sermon for all the pessimists. But I'm an optimist. And the story continues that God is gracious. Isn't that the awesome truth? Isn't God gracious in spite of our sin? Here comes the grace. In spite of incredible worldwide sin, Seth's line, sustaining righteousness, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And this is the book of the generations of Adam. 
When Adam created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image. And he named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And I'm not going to continue, but it just continues to go on, sounding like you're walking through a graveyard of people who had ultra-long ages. They lasted a really long time. What you have is God raised up another line. Instead of the world descending into wickedness, he raised up a righteous line, Seth and his children. And by the time Seth's son comes around, what you have is it says people began to call on the name of the Lord. Literally, this means what they were doing is they were leading a small revival in a wicked and godless world. They were calling people back to God. Were they really successful at doing it? They had limited success. But here's God being gracious. God leaving a light in a godless culture. And it continues on and goes on. And people live ultra-long ages. Do, they, do I really believe these are the length of their actual ages? Yes, I do, by the way. I, I really do. And I'll let you worry about that in your life group worksheets tonight. But here's the interesting part where it gets so cool. We got seven generations in on Cain's line, and it was Lamech, the ultra-wicked, godless guy. That was the sample. You go seven generations in, on Seth's line, who do you come across? A guy named Enoch. Now, here's the deal. This righteous line, when you get down to Enoch, Enoch, it says, walked with God. He was so righteous that he didn't even die. But God brought him home directly to be with him. Look what it says. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What we see is an incredible grace of God. The world has descended into a wicked, godless place, but God has raised up a righteous generation. It starts out through Seth. And then it goes to Enosh. And eventually, it goes all the way down to Noah. Enoch was such a righteous guy. He's the sample. He's so righteous, he gets brought home to be with God directly. When the time you get to Noah, what we find is the Scriptures say there is only eight righteous people left on the face of the earth. God had sustained a line. We have the flood that we deal with next week, why God wipes out the earth. But God continues to sustain that line all the way from Noah, all the way down to Jesus. And then God moves from sustaining a line of righteousness to recapturing the world and transforming it into a place of righteousness through you and me and what God has done for us through Jesus. It's all about God's incredible grace. At first it was sustaining, and now it's reaching into the entire world. How do I respond? 
Here's a couple of things for you to look at. We can respond today by looking at Cain and Abel, looking at their sacrifices. How do we give to God? Do we give our firsts and do we give our bests or do we give our leftovers? That's one way God may be calling you to respond. Maybe God is calling you to respond by simply being a Cain and at least saying, I'm here to give something, not just about what I get something. Maybe for some of you, the way to respond is you have to deal with your sin. Some of you are this morning are in the same position Cain was. You know, Cain had sin crouching at his door and he didn't realize what happens if he had continued to entertain it and gave into it and it led to murder. Some of you may need to repent of your sin and run to God's grace before your sin leads you into a really dark and wicked place. And for all of us, one way we can respond is by worship. Worshiping God because He is incredibly gracious, incredibly kind, and incredibly merciful to us. Just like He was in the days of Cain, all the way down to Noah. What does it say in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20? that God patiently waited in the days of Noah for people to repent. And today, God is patiently waiting for each one of us to repent of our sin and to come to Him through Jesus. His hands are open wide. God's Spirit is filled with mercy, and it's filled with grace, and it's all seen through Jesus. Amen? Dear Jesus, thank you for the story of Cain and Abel. Lord, it's, what a vivid picture to see the world descending into increasing levels of depravity and darkness and wickedness and sin. But thank you that we could see that you sustained this righteous line of Seth. And you weren't just about sustaining it, but we live in an age and a time where you're, the seed of Eve has come. Jesus has come and he's crushed the head of Satan. And we have the good news of Jesus Christ that by simply trusting what you have done, Jesus, we are freed from the power of Satan, sin, and death. We worship you and we thank you for that. Thank you for making us into new creations through what you have done through your Son. We ask this all in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.